So today we're going to look at a story together in Genesis chapter 16. And it's the story of Hagar, who was Abraham and Sarah's servant. And it's about when she had to run away because she was being mistreated. Before we start reading the story together, I want to remind us that most of the Bible is what we call narrative. It is stories. In fact, there are over 500 stories in God's Word, making up one big story. And of course, all of these stories are how God makes himself known to us. We know that God is powerful. We know he's a God of love, of mercy. We know he's faithful to his promises. But the main way we know these things isn't because God gave us a list of statements, of doctrines. Of course there are those in the Bible, but the way we know these things about God is because he's made his character and his purposes known through stories. And that's what we're going to see in Genesis chapter 16. It reveals some things about God. But first of all, if we're going to read a story, we need to put it in the context of the main story. And Genesis begins, as we know, with the story of creation. And there's many things that this teaches us. The main things that I want to, to reference now is that it teaches us about the power and majesty of God. That God speaks and everything comes into being. And there's only one God. We're not told that there's lots of gods and one of them created. There is one God and he is almighty and powerful and he speaks and through his word all things are made. And we learn about Adam and Eve being created and they're different from everything else that God has created because they're made in his image. They're made to be like him, to reflect his image into the world which he has made. And then, of course, we read about how Adam and Eve disobey God. They don't reflect his image. They choose to do what they want. And they eat the fruit that God had forbidden. And sin and evil and wickedness come into the world. And very quickly, we see that the world which was good, God declared it good, becomes evil and wicked and mankind is killing each other and terrible things are happening. And then we get to the story of Noah, which is like God beginning again. He chooses a righteous man and he comes <coughs> to rescue him from the judgment which is coming, which is the flood. And it's like God is washing, cleansing the earth and beginning again with Noah. But still, wickedness and evil increase. And then we get to the story of Abraham. And God comes to Abraham. And in chapter 12, we read about how God promises Abraham that he will become a great nation. He will have many, many descendants. Abraham and his wife Sarah are very old. And this seems impossible. How can they have children at their age? But God promises them that this will happen. That's in Genesis 12. Then in Genesis 15, just before the chapter we're going to read, God renews his promise to Abraham and says, this is going to happen. 
I will fulfill what I have promised to you. And it's going to be through Abraham that all the peoples on the earth are going to be blessed. It's going to be through Abraham that God begins again to rescue men and women who he's made in his image. And he wants them to be image bearers to the rest of the world. So that's a brief summary of what happens before we get to chapter 16. Now I'm going to read a few verses um, and then make comments as we go. Use the story to teach us and particularly to teach us about God. And you can follow this uh, in your own Bibles. It won't come up on the screen. So Genesis 16 and verse 1. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go and sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abraham had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. Let's just pause there. This seems quite shocking that Abraham and Sarah are a married couple and Sarah says to Abraham, I'm not having children, you can take my servant. Just a few comments to help us understand. At that time in history, because of the understanding, the limited understanding, obviously, of biology and how conception worked, it was considered the woman's problem if there were no children. That's just how it was understood. They didn't think it because of how they thought medically things worked, physically things worked. They didn't think it was the man's problem. It was the woman's problem. And it became usual practice to have children through a slave if your wife couldn't have children. It was usual. It's shocking for us, but for Abraham and Sarah, it's what everyone around them did. So it's not shocking for them. What is shocking in this story is that it's happening straight after God had renewed his covenant with Abraham, promising that he and Sarah would have children and that they would have <coughs> become a great nation. Straight after God renews his promise, this story happens. This isn't a story of faith. This is a story of people trying to make things happen themselves. Rather than trust the word of God and his promises, they are trying to produce children their way. Let's read on. Verse 4. Abraham slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abraham, you're responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abraham said. Do with her whatever you think best. Let's pause there for a moment, a few comments. There's a lot of sin in this story. So Hagar begins to despise Sarah. Hagar's thinking, I've got you, I'm pregnant now, Sarah couldn't be. But Sarah, who suggested this, who said to Abraham, take my servant, she now blames Abraham. Abraham doesn't argue for righteousness. He just says to Sarah, well, you can do what you want. She's your slave. Abraham 
who has been chosen by God to become a great nation, doesn't act righteously. There is a lot of sin in this story. And it reminds us Bible characters aren't always examples for us to follow. There are many amazing things that Abraham does in terms of obeying God, leaving his home and his family, uh, land and uh, his household of his father, just like God told him in Genesis 12, Abraham obeys. But there's many other things that are sinful. And this happens again and again through scripture. Bible characters aren't always the heroes for us to follow in everything that they do. Obviously, acts of obedience are good examples for us. Acts of faith are good examples. But right here, this is not an example of godliness and faith. There are echoes of Eden in this story from the garden. <clears throat> Mankind relying on his own effort, disobeying God, not trusting him for what food he should eat and choosing to eat from the tree that God said he shouldn't. And then when God questions Adam in the garden about what had happened, he says, that woman you gave me did this. Um, and now in this story, the woman is blaming the husband. There are echoes of Eden uh, here. The couple are both sinning. Sarah's treatment of Hagar is wrong, it's unrighteous. Abraham does not act righteously. Again in the garden, both Adam and Eve sinned. So let's read on. In this story of <clears throat> people not listening to God's promise, trying to make things happen themselves, of an, the story of injustice, the story of sin, let's keep reading. Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarah, where, I, where <coughs> have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Let's again pause. Hagar has to leave. Such is the mistreatment that she is facing. This is huge. She doesn't have anything, Hagar. She's a slave and she's pregnant. She should be in the protection of the family. That's the best place for her. She's now on the road, alone. Sure, the road, that, the place she's heading on, that's on the way to Egypt. Looks like she is returning home. Looks like she's trying to go back, maybe to her family or her community. But she's alone. She's pregnant. There is no security or safety for her. She is fleeing. She's in a desperate situation, putting herself in danger by being a, a slave on her own, on the road, and pregnant. She's vulnerable and she is running away. This is a desperate situation. But we read, the angel of the Lord came to her. God found her. God is looking for her. It's like Eden again. When Adam and Eve sin and God is walking in the garden, they hide and God calls out to them. God is a God who looks for us. Even though there is sin and evil in this story, we find God working. And the angel asks God, asks Hagar, sorry, he asks Hagar where she's fleeing from and where she's going. But he knows already. 
He knows what's happening. He knows where to find her. He didn't have to look very hard. He knows what's happened. Why does he ask? Because he wants relationship. Because he is showing, demonstrating his care, his interest, his love, his mercy. This is remarkable. Remember what I said at the beginning with the introduction about how we see in Genesis in the creation story that God is almighty and powerful. He only has to speak and life comes. And now we see this almighty God stepping into his creation, into a situation of sin and evil and there being no faith and there being disobedience. And instead of God staying away, instead of God staying distant, God comes right in and he finds Hagar and he talks with her, interacts with her, asks her questions. In the pain and mess of evil and wickedness, God makes himself known. God is holy. He's totally different from us. We're meant to bear his image, but we're not like him. He's almighty and powerful and holy, but he doesn't stay away. He comes close because of his love and his mercy. He pursues Hagar. She's the one who has been rejected and oppressed and on the receiving end of unrighteousness and sin, and yet God, in his love and mercy and compassion, comes to her. This is God making himself known. This is God displaying his character. A few chapters after we read of his power and might in creation, we see God pursuing the ones who have been pushed away, the ones who have received unrighteousness and been oppressed, and God comes to them. What a God. What a saviour. Let's keep reading. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard of your misery. He'll be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. The God of creation comes to the abandoned, the abused, the homeless slave. And he brings honour and status and hope. He tells Hagar, What's going to happen? He asked her to do something really, really difficult, which is to return to the place where she has been abused, where she has received oppression and where she is fleeing from. But he says, you need to go back. And part of why she needs to go back is because it's the safest place. It's where she will be cared for. It's where she will be protected. It's where the son can be raised. He wants her to go back. And the honour comes from the fact that God is speaking to her. God has found her. It's like he, she's fleeing and she's alone, but God comes to her and gives her honour and speaks with her and that lifts her. And he says, you're going to have a son. You're going to have a son and he will become, he will have many, many descendants. You see, God is faithful to his covenant with Abraham. The promise is going to come through the son, the fulfilment of the promise is going to come through the son, 
that Abraham will have with Sarah later in the story. That's how the nations will be blessed. Eventually, it's through those descendants that Jesus will come. But God is still faithful to his covenant with Abraham to Hagar because he's still Abraham's son. So her heirs will be many. So God is faithful to his promise. He still acts in the evil and the wickedness. Let's read the next few verses to finish this part of the story. So back to Hagar, verse 13. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. So we're told it's an angel of the Lord, but often in these stories in the Old Testament, when the angel of the Lord is mentioned, it's actually God in a, a human form. God, it, like through a vision or God through an actual person, it gets called the angel of the Lord, but it's clear from what people say and how they respond that they think it's God himself. And this is what Hagar says, you are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well where she was, was called Beer Lachoi Roy. It's still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar born Abraham a son, and Abraham gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. This is remarkable what happens here. A slave girl, an abandoned slave girl, gets to name God. This gets to be recorded in scripture. The name, the God who sees. And she gets to name him. She who has no honour. She who is not part of the covenant family. She's come from Egypt, the nation that actually will end up oppressing God's people in the future. And yet God blesses her and she gets to name him the God who sees. And this isn't just God seeing um, from a distance. This is the God who notices, the God who acts. That's what it means here, to see. It means to get involved, to come with mercy and compassion, to bring honour, to bring hope. A God who notices and acts, especially for the oppressed, for those who receive injustice, for those who have been pushed away. God is a God of compassion and mercy and love. This is God making himself known in the most surprising of ways. Yeah, he's going to make himself known through the faith of Abraham and Sarah when they do have a child. That's all to come in the story. But before we get to that, God has made himself known to this slave. And it seems in the story, if you read it and follow it chronologically, she sees God before Abraham does. Although God has made himself known to Abraham, uh, up until this point, we're not told that Abraham has actually seen God. God has spoken to him. God, in the previous chapter, gives him this amazing vision. I mean, it, it sounds so real. It's like it's happening in the flesh, but we're told it's a vision. And it's later in the story that Abraham actually gets to meet God. She sees him even before Abraham does. <clears throat> and then if we move on from this specific story to think of the theme about the God who sees, we 
begin to understand through what happens through scripture that we as his image bearers, what we see at the beginning of creation, that we are his people. And so when Abraham's descendants become a nation, God instructs them to have the same concern that he has for the oppressed and for the excluded and to see and act with righteousness towards them. And there are many, many examples. But we see this in Deuteronomy, where Moses is reminding God's people of the law and their history and that God has called them out of Egypt and to make them a great nation. And in Deuteronomy 24, verse 17, God says this, Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. They are to be a people who bear God's image and see the oppressed and have compassion and mercy on them. And there's many verses that sum this up, that talk about honouring and caring for widows or the orphans. But if we were to jump even further ahead in the story and get to the coming of Jesus, who is the full revelation of God, then there's a remarkable story of him seeing a woman who would be rejected by society, who would be seen as a woman who doesn't have any honour. And it's in John chapter 4, the woman at the well. That's how we know the story. And in verses 4 to 6, we haven't got time to read the whole story, so I'm just going to read a few verses. It says this, Now Jesus had to go through Samaria, and he came to a town called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Joseph's well was there. It's a story of a woman and a well, just like Hagar was by a well. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. And then uh, reading on verses 7 to 10, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Because Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is to ask you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And then a few verses later, verse 16, he told her, go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now, sometimes people read this and think that this woman has uh, not lived righteously and has been with many men and that she's the wicked one in, in the story, that she has sinned. But actually, that's not really an accurate reading because... The fact is she has been married to many men, um, probably because her husbands may have left her and abandoned her or who have died. And so someone else in the family under the law um, and in the culture would then have to marry her. So actually it's far more likely that she has been on the receiving end, like Hagar, of being rejected um, and of suffering and of wickedness and evil. And yet Jesus is coming to her. Jesus has seen her. And then towards the end of the story, in verses 25 to 26, after they have talked more and 
she has realized that Jesus is not just a traveler, weary and wanting water, that actually something powerful is happening. The woman says, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This again is an amazing story. Jesus makes himself known to this woman at the well, someone who a Jew would not be talking to, someone who would not be an honourable person in the community. And yet this is the first time Jesus reveals who he is, that he is the Messiah, and he does it to a woman at the well, the God who sees. In the context of wickedness and evil, he comes to the oppressed, he comes to the suffering, he comes to those who have been excluded, and he sees and he makes himself known. He reveals who he is. This truth, this revelation of God seeing runs through the whole story of Scripture. It's why Jesus came. Because God the Father, God the Almighty, powerful Creator, saw that his image bearers, the ones made to be like him and reflect him into the world, were not being image bearers. They had chosen sin and wickedness and evil. And so he comes to them and sends Jesus because he sees us. And instead of staying away and instead of coming with judgment and saying, you have not been my image bearers, he comes, one of us, Jesus, his son, and dies on the cross in our place in order to rescue and redeem and save us from sin and wickedness and evil. God sees you. God sees your family. The difficulties, the challenges, the anxieties, the things that are happening in your life right now, you're not alone. There are times, of course, when things are so difficult and the challenges are so great. Um, we're thinking, where is God? What, what's happening at the moment? I'm so confused. I thought God was going to do this or I didn't think this would happen in my life. God still sees you and knows and understands and has mercy and compassion. God is a God who sees, a God who comes alongside, a God who's faithful to his promise but a God who is full of mercy and love and compassion. Sometimes in our worry and our anxiety um, and in our busyness and in trying to cope with everything, we don't always give time for God to see us, for let God come to us. Because through Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, we can know his presence every day through his spirit. Make sure you allow time to let God see you, to come to you, to remind you of his plans, his purposes, his salvation. He is a God who sees, a God who comes to those who are in difficulty and hardship. But also, one more thing for us before we finish. We are to be his image bearers. We're to reflect him into the world. So there's a question for us through these stories of Hagar and then Jesus and the woman at the well. Who do we see? Who around us in our life and in our work and in family life and in 
going to school, collecting our children, or in living in the communities where we're living, who do we see? Because we're meant to be the image bearers, the ones who demonstrate that there is a God of love and mercy. Who do we bring dignity and honour to? Who can we express love and compassion to? Is it only people like us? Is it only in the context of gathering in church that we do this? We should do this in the church. But who in the community do real life church see? Who do they stop alongside to bring love and compassion and mercy to? The church is the body of Christ in the world. And we're meant to be a church that sees. A church that shows and demonstrates the love and mercy and compassion for those that have not seen it. For those who are on the receiving end of hardship and pain and rejection. The church needs to be a church who sees. Because we have been seen by God and received his love and mercy and grace. Amen.